Welcome to Stemiverse Podcast, episode 19. In this episode, Peter and Marcus talk with Brian McNally. Brian is a veteran teacher with 23 years of experience. Brian has moved from outdoor education to primary physical education, secondary physical education, IT, math, and science. Specializing in gifted and talented education, Brian is now teaching Stage 3 students, which is Years 5 and 6, on the New South Wales Central Coast in Australia. Brian regularly presents seminars and training events to teachers in topics such as thinking while moving in mathematics, using IT in physical education and mathematics. These are some of the topics that we'll be discussing with Brian in this podcast. Brian's passion is in encouraging students to make links between concepts taught in STEM subjects. By making learning relevant through pop culture, his students become actively engaged in the lessons through familiarity with themes common to their generation. This is STEMiverse Podcast Episode 19. Welcome to STEMiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Dalmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpie, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. Well, Brian, thank you for joining us in another episode of STEMiverse, and here I am again in the STEMiverse studio with mm-hmm. Marcus Sharpie. G'day. Uh, thank you for, for being with us this uh, Friday afternoon. You had a, a long day at school, and thankfully the kids are, are home now. Well, they should be, at least. Well, they're not here anyway. Yeah, at least not, not that you can hear. So, Brian, could you uh, take the next few minutes and tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? You can go as far back as you like. I'm, I'm always interested to also know where people uh, spend their school years and uh, those formative years, and then bring it all the way to where you are now. That's okay. Well, um, obviously, on this day in 1966, I came into the world. <laughs> so, um, Happy birthday. Yes, well, it's your birthday. Happy you birthday. birthday. That's what the cake is about later. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I've had a bit of cake today, and I'm looking forward to some more later on. Yes, um, I went uh, after school. I um, travelled uh, for a fair for a little bit. I had the most interesting job at the time for a 19-year-old. I was on um, the Bonds Blimp or the airship as a crewman going around Australia for a bit before I went to uni. Spent a couple of years overseas and came back and did the university thing, trained as a, a, a school teacher. Uh, once I came out of university, I worked in outdoor education full-time for about four years. Outdoors education? Outdoor education, yes. Yeah. So I really got that out of my system. It was uh, quite good. Uh, enjoyed it immensely because you were, you were uh, required to do a lot of thinking on your feet as well. Mm. Could you describe what, what that might be? I'm not familiar with the term. Oh, with the outdoor education, you're teaching kids how to um, you know, work in the outdoors. So that's abseiling, uh, rock climbing, uh, kayaking, uh, a lot of initiatives, activities in the bush, uh, how to create shelters and the like. To light up a fire using uh, yeah, yeah, rock yeah. and wood. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Lighting fires, navigating um, through land, through um, through rivers. Hmm. Using the stars. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's nice learning how to navigate what's done. That's all my gamer stuff, isn't it? So how many kids did you lose? (laughs) How many did I lose? um, Only only the the ones you wanted to lose. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Yeah. So I enjoyed that immensely for a few years. Uh, Then when when I started having a family, outdoor education does take up a lot of the time. So I went back into uh, mainstream teaching. For a year, then um, I was asked to go into a primary PE position. Uh, so I um, did about six years doing that, um, got involved with the sport. After six years, I decided I need to get back into high school for a little bit more stimulation. So I worked at a selective high school mm-hmm. uh, for a number of years, and that was a massive advantage because I, although I started in my faculty in PE, I, was, I had retrained in IT. I'd done my own training. Uh, in IT, so I was asked to do a PE and IT block, and then that became a maths block as well, mm-hmm. and um, then a science block. So I actually got to teach in a number of the faculties in the high school. And uh, what was a mass, what was a great advantage of that is quite often the content of what you're teaching is specific to the faculty. But a lot of the core material is the same. It's just you're putting a particular slant on it when you're teaching in, in that faculty. So it was um, quite an experience to see how you could transfer that knowledge between the faculties and it um, still held value. And uh, like we do with STEM, crossing, crossing the different subjects and seeing their relevance with each other. Was it planned as you transitioned from PE to IT, then to math and science? Was there planning or was just your, your uh, school headmaster reacting to the requirements or what needed to be taught? No, um, I actually did the training off my own bat because I was interested in the IT. I, I, I don't want to just think of my, I didn't want to think of myself just as PE. I wanted to, to venture out and I wanted to actually work with uh, gifted and talented. Uh, students, and um, I thought there was there was greater value in, in um, learning the IT subjects. So, how did you learn those subjects? Yeah, I did some online training with um, with the university. Uh, did a course, did did a TAFE course as well because that's where you do get the hard skills quite often. Uh, with uh, so, um, I, I did get a lot of benefit. I'll, I'll admit, I did get a lot of benefit out of the TAFE course, just learning how to how to use programs. How, how long would you stay in a particular role? So how much time did you spend in PE, for example, before you moved into IT, just to get a sense of uh, when, how long did it take you before you felt ready to move into something new or a new adventure? Yeah, um, well, I had the four years full-time outdoor education. Then I'd had the six years full-time PE. But while I was doing the PE, that's where I started. Um, what got me interested in the PE uh, when you're running a carnival, for example, if you're running a sporting activity, there's a whole lot of paper trails that are followed. So a student or a competitor goes into a race and, and somebody writes down that um, result, then it has to be was done on carbon paper in the day or mm. had to be then transferred across by hand and mistakes can occur. So it became quite obvious straight away that I wanted a quicker version of that. So you'd, you'd want a database, obviously, to run mm or a spreadsheet, which, whichever the, um, the user was more, more capable of because you've got someone on recording. So I wanted to learn how to design those myself to, to use carnivals. 
And um, so that's when I started uh, along the IT line, seeing the benefit that that would have and how it could streamline events. And um, when you're running sport in a school, I was in a school that had 850 students, and just to manage that students, it was, it was it made a lot more sense to set up a database. So to set up a database, I knew how to use it really effectively, and to learn how to use it effectively, I had to do a course. When was that? Chronologically, yeah, when abouts was, was that training? We're talking 15 to 20 years ago. Right. Uh, I've been teaching for 23 years. Yeah, because back then there was not online education really, so you had to go to university or TAFE. Yeah, sorry, not being online, like they used to post out. out um, ah, right, okay. So distance education in a way, right? Yeah, so online was just about to come in, but yeah, you got your assignments posted mm. here, you did them, you sent them back for review. Mm. So all that was your initiative then, you wanted to, to move into things like that. And did you think that by moving through all these different, let's call them disciplines, uh, there was some cross-fertilization? So when you were teaching IT, you were using physical education concepts and experience and, and vice versa. When you went into math, for example, did those past learnings carry through? Definitely. When you're using any teaching technique, for example, of, of the learner, you know, some people are visual learners, some people are kinesthetic learners, some people are uh, oratory learners. So, you know, you can hear it, you can see it, you can do it. There's different ways of learning. Seeing what works in one subject and referring that to another subject, there's conceptual. So you, you've got to come up with, you've got to theorise, you've got to come up with the idea all the way down to making it practical. So it's it's almost like looking at the theorist or the architect going down to the engineer, going down to the builder. If there's an understanding between between the subjects and you can use that information, all those techniques between the subjects, then, it, then you're much more valuable mm. than if, if you're just using one focus, one aspect. If you're restricting yourself to one aspect, you're not learning. You're not seeing your purpose, your part within the, the greater machine, to use a better word. Hmm. So you think so that, just rather than, yeah. rather than being the cog, you, you can be other parts as well. Do you think that those concepts can be carried through to pretty much anything? Like, let's say that you are tasked to teach geography next term. Uh, with those same concepts applying, could you give us perhaps an example of what, say, something uh, uh, along those lines might look like in a geography class? Something, something that you learned from PE, for example. It doesn't have to be a geography class. It can be history. <laughs> yeah, just first thing in mind. Yeah. But, um, again, you've got to get, get interest in, in the learner. So um, I think probably if, if I were to give you an example of something that I've used in the past to get the interest of the learner. My son was uh, in year one or year two, so he was quite advanced in his math. I used to um, stay, you know, I used to live it. So I used to, when I was teaching PE, I used to ride my bike to work. And one day a guy decided to um, pull out in front of me in the car. I was in fluoro colours, but he couldn't see me. So I had to take some time off from work while I um, recovered from the Dakota collarbone. Jeez, ouch. That must have hurt. And when I saw, when I saw my son's maths class, they were, just, they were just repeating really simple concepts. So then we went on, uh, imagine they're in year one. They're, they're quite advanced learners. So we came up with um, Old MacDonald had a farm. 
So we changed the name from Old to Ed McDonald had a farm. So that became uh, Ed Institute of Everything in the Outdoors, which was E-I-E-I-O, because they understood that. So that becomes the acronym. So on that farm, you had to solve mathematical problems for Ed. So, uh, for example, um, the hands have fallen off the clock, but we knew that the hand was facing 90 degrees before it fell off. So at 90 degrees, that's um, the three on the clock. Yep. So rather than just... Rather than just going straight to solving the problem, we'd have uh, um, part of part of the equation was missing and they had to solve it. You get two parts of any equation, two out of three parts of any equation, you can solve it. But just removing that thing that made it a little bit more interesting. Uh, on the farm, they had to count the animals. So you had two-legged animals and four-legged animals. So the counting machine would count by twos or fours. Hmm. But the anomaly that we threw in was Henry the three-legged sheep. So when Henry ran past that would break up the pattern. So rather than going up by twos and fours, it's only got by three. So you would be able to identify when Henry went through. And then um, travelling through to create a map, to create a map of the um, farm on which they were working, we had the sounds that they could hear. So you're dealing with quite young children and they get excited when they say, you know, a bear, that's a sheep. So then you know which paddock the sheep are and you're numbering the paddock. So... That really made them think. And I made it as a mail merge document as well. So you put in the teacher's name, the school's name, the principal's name, and each of the children in the class. So that becomes more, more um, valuable to them. That's got meaning to you. Uh, just to imagine the scene now. So is this all happening inside a classroom or are you actually outside in, in the yard? That's no, no, no. It's in a classroom. Yep. But you're presenting, you're presenting the different parts of... Right. So you've got the, the worksheets, the worksheets that you're making up, and it's simulating the the, um, the farm visit. Mm. What we were doing with the, those students. Uh, once they got a little bit older, we started looking at uh, the Harry Potter series, which was quite quite um, in at the time. Mm. So then you're taking say your, your literacy and bringing it into mathematics. So everyone just says it's magic, but if you take magic and you explain it through mathematics and physics then it has some sense to it. So if you're familiar with the Harry Potter story, you can be an animagus, which means that you can change from an animal to a human. So we looked we look at how much you weigh or your mass and how many kilojoules would it take to transform that mass into a new type of mass. So, or you're going from a small mass to a greater mass, so you've got to intake energy to do that, obviously. Mm -hmm. So food kilojoules. How much you need to eat? Yeah, well, yeah, you've got to. In, obviously, we we generally get our um, energy intake from ingestion, from food ingestion. Yeah. But um, you can absorb energy from a number of sources as well. Right. So, how much did you account the fat, and how much did you account the muscle and bone? <laughs> yeah. We didn't look. We didn't look at bone density. We didn't look at uh, BMIs or anything like that because we kept <laughs> it a little bit purely on mass. Keep the magic. <laughs> that, that's the advanced class when they're in your, when they're later. <laughs> okay. But I think the, so what you're trying here to do is to use whatever the kids are familiar with and are excited about, like it could be Harry Potter because they watched the film last week. And then you take advantage of that excitement to the mathematics or science or whatever you decide to do because the brains are basically, they're really 
open to those ideas that relate to things that they associate with good fun and imagination, right? Is that thinking behind all this? Yes, you're creating a relationship. So you've already got an interest. And and once you've got an interest, you're going to, um, you're using those characterizations from a book, for example. Hmm. They're familiar with the character. You use traits of the character as you're creating a story for your your, um, questions you're going to be asking in the map. So another example is the um, flying car. Now, a flying car uses um, petroleum products like any other car, and in the, in the actual books and in the movies, they have to fuel it up. It runs the fuel at one point. Hmm. So that's from the physical world. That's not from the magical world. So you're still relying on, on some traits of the muggle world. So you've then got to buy fuel. Now, you're paid in your galleons and your canoots, so you've got to convert that. So suddenly we've got a conversion rate for different currencies. Because if you gave hmm. muggles to hmm. yep. they go, what are, you, what are you doing? Give me give me a pound sterling or your euro, as it would be now. Then with the flying car, we looked at fuel consumption. So if you're going cloaked, that takes more because you've got to create that sort of force field that, that, right. that drops around, so it takes up more fuel. So you can't drive or fly for as long while you're cloaked. And then we're, we're looking at some – when we're looking at the fuel consumption – some of the time you're cloaked, some of the time you're uncloaked. Sometimes you're looking at the speed you're travelling at. Sometimes you're looking at the distance travelled. Sometimes you're looking at the amount of time. So, um, again, you're looking at the different aspects of, of your maths while you're solving that problem. You've got two out of the three, hmm. and you've got to, solve, got to solve the third. Now, because Harry Potter's getting a little bit dated, we've got a Hunger Games one that we look at. <laughs> of course. I was going to ask you, what, what do you do now? Like, what's... Uh the in thing these days. Hunger Games. Hunger Games. You've heard it here. What we've been looking at a few weeks ago in class, we're looking at um, the reaping, for example, hmm. and the number of um, the tesserae that you put in. So if you buy a product from the capital, you, your name goes into barrel more often. Now, we related that to a, um, a rewards program that we've got here. So if you do something right, you get a nice little token. So from that, um, we worked out how how in the Hunger Games, we were talking about influence before, influencing the the outcome of an event. If you're a 12-year-old, your name goes in once. If you're 13, your name goes in twice. All the way up to 18, it goes in six or seven times. Now, because there's more names of 18-year-olds, you're more likely to get an 18-year-old in the ring. And that's what the um, organisers of the Hunger Games would want. They'd want the older children there because it probably makes a a better-looking contest. Now, relating that back to the, the rewards we got that we get here at school, when, you, when you're good, you get a little, little uh, token and you come back to class and the tokens get put into the computer. So um, we then created our and, – and you've got a – there's also a random one. So the teacher can actually push a button that gives a random award to a student. So we decided to duplicate that. So we made our own random um, awards generator that you can put your name in. And to influence the outcome, you put everyone's name in once, but you put your name in 100 times. You use a VLOOKUP. So obviously your name's going to come out more often. This is from ICT class. Yeah, this is ICT that we're teaching in a mainstream year five, six class. Okay. Yeah. Are you familiar with the um, television show on SBS, Letters and Numbers? No, I can't say I am. No, we don't watch much TV. <laughs> yes. Quite a good show. They've got... Um, Sorry, what's the name again, Brian? We'll look it up. Letters and Numbers. Okay. It draws out six numbers, six numbers, 
And then it draws out a three-digit uh, number that you have to use your four operands plus minus divide and times to come up with that three-digit number. Okay. So the numbers are randomly chosen. You can choose a number, a small number, which is a number between 1 and 10, mm-hmm. or you can choose a large number, which is a multiple of 25, so 25, 50, 75, or 100. So you can ask for two large numbers and four small numbers. We created a random number generator in class because it because I was finding it was really quite valuable of, of looking at pattern recognition, times tables beyond the 12, going to the 25, the 50, the 75. So we then we then created our own random number generator that um, pulls out the numbers, and um, then we can actually play letters and numbers at the end of our math lesson, which okay. they, uh, they love doing. So, again, you, you're looking at pattern recognition of high-value high numbers. So letters and numbers is a game show on SPS. Hmm. It's not a mainstream game show. Of course, yet uh, with that name, it wouldn't be. <laughs> yeah, so, all, all these. Um, one, uh, an ex-student of mine was was on there. Um, he was a uh, very high achiever in state in HSC. A lot of you know pure mathematicians go on there to challenge each other. No, uh, awesome. That, that sounds like a good one. Yeah. Yeah. So what? I got got interested in that. Started using the class, and the students just love it. The challenge. Yeah. Of um, trying to beat each other to getting the answer. So do you is this like a game that you would watch with your students in class and like participate in a way? No, um we, we don't we've watched a, a couple of snippets in class, some of the to show there was one particular one where um the contestant's trying to get a, a three digit thumb and he went up into um five digits and then divided by seventy five. And it's like how do you recognise that a large number like that divided by seventy five? Comes Jeez. down to a three-digit number. It was incredible to just to show how um, how um, patterns work, and um, if you recognise patterns, your maths becomes a lot easier. So it's almost mm. automatic response. Mm. So mm-hmm. when we're doing tables, for example, we we did twenty-five and seventy-five times tables today, but we also do algebraic tables, mm-hmm. so a times a, a times b, mm. to get those patterns, and then we do um, decimal. So, you know, 0.7 times 1, 70 times 1. So then you're doing um, your, your decimal values and your multiples of 10. So you're showing that the pattern continues throughout. Great. So what, what do you teach these days, Brian? Are you still with science or have you moved on to something else? I am a mainstream primary teacher in stage 3. So it's mainstream year 5 and year 6. Fortunately, I also have a group that I take out who are called Rich Tasking. Hmm. Now, the rich tasking group look at project-based learning. An example, we've got, the, you know, the fixed equipment that you have in the playground, mm-hmm. the, the play equipment. The group in turn one designed a set of equipment because we give it a budget by the um, school PNC and we got a line and we looked at their programs and we worked out which muscle groups we want to use in our physical activity in the playground. Mm-hmm. And um, the appropriate heights for the um, equipment based on the age of the students, and then we sequenced it. So we've got an infant section, a middle primary section, and an upper primary section. Now we're about four weeks away from the holidays, and in the holidays, that set of equipment that we designed will be put in in the school. So, what's the is the purpose of this physical education? Uh, because you mentioned project-based learning, or is it some other objective or purpose for it? No, again. Why are we getting this equipment? That we've got to look at the user of the equipment. 
and we've got a certain budget that we've got to stick within. How do these things work? So as an adult, you've got to make all of these decisions. Someone's got to make the money for you to be able to afford that. And then you've got to look at who's going to use it at the end. So if a 12-year-old child looks at it, oh, let's get everything that's this high. But then you've got to design it for the younger children as well. So the designing and planning that goes goes along with it. We measured up the area. We've got existing and fixed equipment. We measured up the area and what we wanted, the area isn't large enough. So then we had to work out how we would enlarge the area that we've got. Do we take it apart completely? No, we don't have to. We just have to take one end off and we put a new series of copper's logs in, um, some extensions, and then we close it off again. And um, we presented that to the school. The students presented it to the PNC. Then when the company came out to OK it, I got the students to explain it. So the, the objective here was to basically involve the students in producing something for the playground, but it was a project. They essentially had to supervise it, design it, and then commission it by presenting it to whoever was responsible for putting a signature on the work being completed. Is that the idea behind yeah. it? Right. Yeah. So did the kids have to worry themselves, uh, burden themselves with all these uh, financial issues, like the budget, for example, and how much each component costs and where would things go? How, how much hands-on were the kids? With the budget and that, they knew that we only had a certain amount of money to work with. And um, again, you've only got a certain amount of space to work with as well. So you're working on those constraints. So constraints, right. Yeah, so we look at we look at the equipment. Is this strength-based equipment? Is this agility-based equipment? Is this balance-based? So we want one of those components for each of them. And then we look at all the components that we, that we can um, order because now online you just go through a whole series of the um, components. Right. We looked at ones that had been made up already and we looked at the most suitable transitions between each. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then we were able to kind of map map together what we wanted and um, do rudimentary drawings. We didn't get into CAD or anything like that. We did rudimentary mm-hmm. drawings and said, well, if this uh, strength moves, balance moves into this agility for this age group and then we move across and then the, the logical sequence that you move as a child as you're growing and um, what, you'd, what you'd use that for. Again, I did that one because it's quite physical and you're going to see a response at the end. The th- on the theoretical side of what we're doing with, with um, rich tasking, we've created a virtual theme park. So um, you know how kids love working in Minecraft? Minecraft, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I knew that Minecraft was going to come up <laughs> anytime now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're not working in 3D in our virtual, um, in our virtual uh, theme park. We're working in 2D. But what we do, we simply get a, a spreadsheet. We reduce the cells down so you've got boxes, uh, so it's a grid, essentially. Within that grid, we've got um, conditional formatting in. So mm-hmm. each time we we have a letter, value, so G for graft, which then becomes green. P for pathway, which will become probably red. B for barbecue, which will become brown. So each of the colours, and then you've got to create the map of the theme park. So you're, you're in those cells create, creating that theme park. But down the side of the down the side, it's got a cost for each square meter. So grass is obviously mm. the cheapest mm. if you're yeah. getting a um, facility in that's more costly. And then it um, then you're given a budget, and then it multiplies. So using coding, showing the kids kids how to use coding to create the budget 
allowing you to know how many squares you've used. Yeah, and account for each one in the spreadsheet, right? I think that's how they, they yeah. do the accounting. Yep. And so which spreadsheet are you using? Oh, we, we're just using Excel. Okay. And um, then we've got our count ifs in, so you know how many sections of grass you've got, so how many square metres of grass. Then your sum ifs, so it's adding only adding up grass at this value. And all of these are variables that we put in as well. So suddenly if the price of something changes, we change it at the top of the sheet and then it recalculates oh, the value. So prices for things can float so that they can become a little bit variable, more realistic as in real life. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's what's going to happen. So if I want to make it, if, if it's too easy, then I can say, oh, sorry, the price of this product's suddenly gone up. So you put the price up and then they've got to work within those constraints. After they've done that, we have the second sheet that looks at um, human behaviours. So we come in, we, we just assume that every person who come in, comes through the theme park is going to want hot chips. Mm-hmm. Well, naturally. Yes, but 0.7 or one meat pie. Uh, okay. Then you've got probably 1.5 because everyone gets everyone gets more than one drink. So it's looking at those human behaviours and then it predicts for you. Especially on a hot day. Yeah, yeah that's right. Then it predicts for you issues. how many what, what your orders should be, how many pies you should order, how many cans of drink you should order, how many packets of hot chips you should order. Then it looks at you, you input, you predict how many people are going to come through the gate. And then again, it's got a formula to say, well, if you've got a thousand people coming into your theme park today, you'll need 20 junior attendants. You'll need 20 senior attendants. You'll need um, five supervisors and you'll need two managers. That's very detailed. So I'd like to go back to the real world and then come back to the uh, virtual environment. I've got a couple of questions for that, but just wanted to touch on another thing that you, uh, I know that you did because we were talking about it a little bit earlier today, and that is uh, how you use physical movement uh, in science, mathematics, or STEM education in general. Could you tell us a little bit about that and, and how you use like, physical free movement, uh, body movement, to teach math, for example? Oh, definitely. Pattern recognition uh, in math, I think, is incredibly important. With a program that I'm involved with now, which is called Thinking While Moving in Mathematics, that uh, program has you bring. Uh, it was created by uh, Dr. Nick Riley out of um, the University of Newcastle, and he created a program that essentially takes physical movement into the mathematics classroom, but then allows the mathematics to be taken out into the playground as well, so the lesson can continue, and um, you've got a reason behind the mathematics. So what I'm saying, with pattern recognition, if you put on the board um, you know, A, B, C, and what's, what's the next in the sequence, you know, D, E, F, so, or if you go 1, 2, 3, the next in the sequence is 4, 5, 6. But if, you're, if you've got two patterns working, so you've got 1A, 1 half B, 1 quarter C, you're looking at two different patterns working at the same time. What I do with thinking while moving is while we're reciting one pattern, we've got a particular movement occurring at the same time. So if it's just number recognition, if it's, if it's just something like, like a times table where you're looking at pattern recognition and it's, and it's an easy times table, you do a fast movement, so running on the spot, two, four, six, eight, ten, so you're getting some physical mm. movement. If it's a more complex pattern, if it might have, if it might ha- have some um, alphanumeric code, so using some algebra and some, some um, number codes, 
you'll slow it right down and you'll do a series of movements. So you might do a, a squat, then the arms come out, then the arms come in as you're processing it. So you're breaking down, and this would be more advanced as the um, students get used to it. You'd start with your very simple movement on the spot, just the squat. But as you're making more complex uh, patterns to recognise, then you're introducing your different patterns. And the point of this is? Yeah, why would you? Like, it sounds very tiring yeah. uh, to me. I'd rather just sit down. <laughs> What's the benefit of that? Yeah. Uh, once again, you've got, you've got different learning styles. Yep. So um, you're engaging the learner. You're, you're turning on the parts of the brain that learn when we're physical, when we were developing, when we were evolving. And most of what, what we were doing was physical. We didn't spend a lot of sedentary time sitting down. Yep. So obviously our learning is quite often based on movement. So by creating movement, you have a return on those parts of the brain that rely on movement for learning and increase the learning. So from the research that you've read, does that have to do with memory or with actual processing and solving problems? So now, for example, a technique people use to remember things is to associate information with either objects or even smells and things like that. So memory circuits, uh, would that type of, uh, say, thinking while moving uh, enhance memory, you think, or is it computational problem solving as well? Definitely, it enhances memory as well. We practice with, with a sport, you practice for perfection because you're gaining muscle memory. If you can create an association between not only muscle memory, but um, an activity, that, a physical activity plus a, a mental activity, a mental computation, that can only reinforce it because rather than, than learning the concept in one way, you're learning the concept in multiple. So it would inherently lead to greater long-term memory. So if uh, I can think of a student getting ready for university uh, exams <laughs> and uh, thinking while moving, and then they have to sit down for the university <laughs> exams, uh, will they be allowed to get... <laughs> I'm just joking a little bit here, but I wonder because a lot of the research that I've read says that the uh, a lot of our memory also depends on the situation in which the memory was acquired. Uh, so um, I know that university entry exams is not the only reason for learning, right? But a lot of parents would consider that quite a, a big milestone in the children's learning career. Um, if you asked at entry while you're learning something, then you've got to, you've got to um, use in a practical sense later on. You've then got to become established at thinking to a problem whilst doing that. So take the classic example of learning a sport. You learn to catch a ball while you're standing still. Then you learn to catch a ball while you're moving. So you're increasing the complexity of the task by multi-layering it. Right. And then you can catch the ball, I suppose, uh, running as fast as you can or defending or attacking or in, you can apply that skill in all sorts of different situations. All of them, I suppose, physical, but in different environments, different situations. So in a, in a similar, analogous way, uh, uh, thinking while moving, mathematics, science, literature, whatever it might be, allows you to first learn and then doesn't seem to restrict you much in applying that new learning in different situations, right? Yeah. Look, applied learning is what's going to give you reason for retaining it as well. 
if you learn something, if you just learn it theoretically and you don't see the purpose for it, you're less likely to see the value and less likely to repeat it or um, just because you haven't been given a reason to use it. With the classic thinking while moving, um, where we, we look at statistics, where you, you flip a coin or you throw a dice in the classroom and then we have a spreadsheet that, that looks at, again, we're using, we're using the spreadsheet so that um, we can identify the trends and the spreadsheet cues you into saying this is what should occur. The more the more you repeat the process, they so flip a coin once, you only get a head or a tail. That's not enough. You've got to flip it 50 times, and then it will start to average out. When we use that in the classroom to do statistics, then we take it outside into the playground when we're doing our throws. So you've got your overhead throw, which is quite a random event because you're not controlling the way that if we're using a um, beanbag, a flat-sided beanbag, then you can have heads or tails on one, one side, heads on one side, tails on the other. When you throw it overhead, it's going to rotate and you're not going to be able to pre- predict the outcome. But you're teaching that throwing technique. Then you're teaching the technique of the shot put throw. So it's not going to tumble quite as much. You might be able to influence the outcome just a touch. Then we move on to a discus throw. Yeah, that's more rotational. So if you start with the, with the heads facing up, yeah. you're more likely to the heads and then you're teaching the frisbee throw, and in the frisbee throw, that's very rotational. So you've got a lot of control over the uh, movement through the air of the object. So if you start with heads up, you're almost certainly going to get heads up at the end unless there's another influence. So in that, you're teaching the mathematics in the classroom, looking at stats and probability. You're going out and you're influencing the outcome of an event in the playground, but you're also learning a technique. So if I tie that in... When I'm teaching, say, um, for an athletics carnival, where the students will be competing in discus, shot put, and the general overarm throws throws that they would do with uh, something like a cricket ball, then you're um, creating a purpose for learning those throwing techniques, and you're going to use it in the athletics carnival coming up in that term, and you're seeing the math that you've learned in the classroom, you're seeing that in practice. So it wasn't just something that you learned because you had to learn it in the classroom and pass the test. Mm, but you can yeah. outcomes and you can predict outcomes. Um, before we move on to the next uh, section, do you have uh, some resources for our listeners where they can read more about uh, especially thinking while moving, perhaps something from Nick Rowley or other project-based based learning uh, techniques that you use as well? Definitely. I've produced a series of videos for the Department of Education and if you do YouTube Thinking While Moving in Mathematics, hmm. there's six videos which uh, explain um, the sure. theory behind it and it does give you practical applications. I will look it up and uh, include it in the notes for this show. Thank you for that. I think uh, it's quite interesting to actually see it in practice in the video. Any of your um, listeners are uh, school teachers as well. We're able to um, come out to schools and in-service staff and you can ring the the school sports unit. The New South Wales Department of Education school sports unit can be contacted and um, we can send a a representative. That'd be great, yeah. We'll include that. So I'll lecture to the, the short version of it. The Australian Council of Physical Education we have a short version of that, of Thinking While Moving, which is a 60 to 90 minute presentation. But we do have an accreditation, which is an all day in service. 
So you go to the to the school to deliver the education, not you personally, but the DOE would go and do that. Yeah, there's uh, uh, there's only a certain number of presenters mm. who can um, who are trained up to go out to the schools to present that. But um, it, is, it is well worth it. Uh, as you can imagine, as an educator, you do a lot of in-service. But the, the day I, about two and a half years ago, when I first got involved in thinking while moving, the way it was run, the fact that Nick had us up and moving from minute one, and um, it wasn't just him presenting. It was at the end of the day we had a think tank. And um, you see how other people's thought processes go, go ahead and the resources that they created from that day from that one day, I came out with, with more resources than I'd probably come out from with um, a year worth of... So this program has been uh, going on for a couple of years now? Yes, it's um, well established. Nick's handing it on now, so uh, there was a handful of us from the department who were recognised last year to train up as presenters, and Nick's, I believe, going to um, continue his studies on thinking while moving, not just mathematics, but um, using it in other areas as well. Great. Okay, awesome. So now we're going to move on to some rapid-fire questions. Yeah, time so to speed it up. We will uh, be asking the questions somewhat quickly, but I don't feel the need to answer them super, super quickly, unless you want to. No hurry. No hurry, but uh, we've got about 15 minutes left. Shoot the first one, Max. I'm going to shoot the first one, which is, who has been the most influential in shaping the way that you teach? It could be a real person or imaginary, live or dead. <laughs> Life or dead. Could be a movie person. We've got a very broad spectrum of options here. <laughs> this, um, this is a real person. Unfortunately, she has passed away. Uh, her name is Elaine Johnston, and she was a learn-to-play hockey coach. Yeah. Now, you might think, why am I influenced so much by learn-to-play hockey coach? Because she was incredible at what she did. These young students of about six years old teach her how to play hockey. The thing about Elaine is what, that she presented herself as a learn-to-play hockey coach, but as I got to know her, she was also a secondary teacher. A comment she made to me about physiology and the way that, that males presented teaching hockey to the way females presented hockey, and she started talking about physiology on the side. Hmm. And then um, I found out throughout her career she had um, taken high school students and done some incredible problem-based learning. But... When she needed to be that, that hockey coach, that, that little learn-to-play hockey coach, that Mickey hockey coach, that's what she was. Yeah. But then when the kids were on and we got into conversation about teaching and she let me have those insights into her incredible knowledge, she had an OAM in hockey and she could talk about any international event. She trained up and, and played a very high level of, of hockey, but she was able to break it down to the youngest person uh, when needed to, when when um, you were interested not only in hockey but in a series of subjects, she could talk to an incredible level. Oh, how did she shape the way that you teach, though? Mm. So what practical? How? Uh, what's the influence of her onto your style of thinking and teaching, right? So when you teach today, what, what do you say that uh, she did that? Yeah, influence. Thanks. Yeah, she had this incredible depth of knowledge with hockey that then she could break it down to the most simple form for the youngest person. Uh, it's kind of like with the Neil deGrasse Tyson lectures that I was at a month ago. 
he uses language that is inclusive of everybody. But if I'm sure if you went to the went and had him on the side and, and showed that you had a much higher higher level of knowledge, he could go in depth. So it would adjust to your level. The tailoring of the lesson to yeah. your audience. Yeah. Exactly right. So you've got this knowledge, but it's smart. If, if you met Elaine and you just saw her for the first time, it's just, yeah, she's the little little kitty hockey coach. She's the minky hockey coach. Mm-hmm. But when you got to know her and that depth of knowledge and the way she could pass that on was so incredible straight away, I thought that. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I'm going to look it up. I hope there is a Wikipedia article about her because it seems, it seems like she's worth it. She's worth a Wikipedia article. So next question, and uh, uh, pretty much the last one. What advice would you give to educators just starting out now? Um, it's very cramped, the curriculum now. There's a, a lot, of, lot of expectation, and, and you're jumping from one thing to the other, to the other, to the other. Don't forget that, that you're still the learner, okay? You're up the front of the classroom. You're delivering the content. Because you're delivering the content, don't close down to, to anything that a student mm. can offer you. Mm. Once you close down, you've stopped your learning. And once you've yeah. stopped learning, you're not effective anymore. So learn with the students. <laughs> yeah. Let them open up, particularly when, when you're doing something like coding. There can be six different ways to come out with the same conclusion. You're looking over and you're giving your students a little bit of a broad outcome. So mm. I want this outcome, to how would you do it? And you look down at the students going, well, I did it this way. So I did not think yeah. of that. So they've come up with a superior way of doing it, but you've taught them how to do it. You've taught them how to learn. Yeah. And that's the whole point about, about teaching. Don't just teach content. Teach them how to learn and show how, how one strand will relate to another strand, how one subject will relate to another subject. So this morning, for example, with maths, we started on time, adding time together. But by the end of the lesson, we were adding um, angles together because in time you're talking in hours, then you're talking in minutes, then you're talking in seconds. In angles, mm, you're talking mm, in mm. degrees, then minutes and seconds. So it's the same increments. And when you're adding them together, it's the same form. So, uh, so I was just going to uh, uh, summarise this to the teacher is a learner, foremost. Yes. And don't just look at the students and copy down the – just don't cut the information that you're given. Know your students really well. Mm. Um, you'll have two classes next to each other. Quite often in education now, they're saying you've got to teach the same content so everyone's got an even share of what they've learned. But two classes next door to each other can be completely different in the way they learn. So look at the content, look at the delivery that's going to be most effective, and don't try and be that person next door. Be who you are because you're, you know how you deliver content, the best way for you to deliver the content. And um, mm-hmm. by all means, learn with other people and take their good point. But don't take all their points. Take their good points and infuse them in your good points and just make them better points. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time. If our listeners wish to get in touch with you, what's the best way that they can do so? Um, I've got a Department of Education email would probably be the best way. We'll include it in our show notes. Uh, Are you on social media by any chance? Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram? Yeah, uh, Facebook. LinkedIn. So you're on Facebook? I must admit, I'm, I'm not particularly really <laughs> big on the, on the social media, but I do have a Facebook, yeah. Okay, okay. so the best well, way they can get in contact with you is via the email. Email. And yeah. we'll include that in the notes. 
because I think you have a lot of expertise to give out to people that want to try some of the things that you've tried as well. And uh, we'll connect them to you. So thank you, Brian. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. And uh, everything that you discussed today with us. Uh, it's really amazing stuff. I, like, I wish I had a teacher like you as well. When I was a kid, would have made things much more amazing. And so thank you enjoy. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. Oh, pleasure. Uh, enjoy the rest of your birthday. <laughs> and uh, we'll talk soon. Great. That's all for this episode. If you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.